This is Zips Unlimited, a show about the University of Akron, its programs, its people, and its community. Zips Unlimited is produced by WZIP-FM. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zips Unlimited. My name is Chris Kepler. I'm the general manager here at WZIP. Joining me today is Dr. Cherie Strawn. She is the uh, is a professor. She is the director of the Bliss Institute of Applied Politics here at the University of Akron. Welcome. Thank you. You're relatively new, at least in this role, right? In this role. I started July 1st, um, but I was here as um, a graduate student and earned my master's degree in applied politics which the Bliss Institute supports. So I was here in the 90s. Right. Okay. And we, we wanted to hear about the Bliss Institute, about some of your, I guess, your plans, your vision for the Bliss Institute, which, you know, anybody who's been paying attention at all, I think, knows the stellar reputation that is associated with Bliss. Um, and we also, we have to, really, talking to political scientists just a few days after the election, uh, maybe get a little bit of uh, analysis on, on what has been happening what is still happening, and then what's going to be happening, because it really all sort of goes together, doesn't it? It, it certainly does. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so I'll start with Bliss. Okay, sure. And then we can move on from there. So um, when I interviewed, I wanted to be clear and authentic about what, what my vision would be for Bliss so that I could be you know, transparent and authentic so that I could come and do what, what I wanted to do if I were hired. And the legacy of the Bliss Institute is so important to me. I, I was a, I'm not quite first-gen, um, my mother did eventually go back and get um, a teaching certificate, but she's the baby of 13 and the only one in her family. So I don't have a history of college going. Yeah. I would never have gone on for, you know, and started a program that had a PhD program where I would have been lumped in with PhD students. It was, I would have been out of my element and over my head. And so one of my professors who worked with my predecessor, John Green, recommended Bliss. And it was just a wonderful fit for me a wonderful place for me to explore whether I wanted to go on and do applied politics, which we have one of five programs in the entire United States that prepares students for um, careers in campaigns and elections and, and sort of practical political work um, that is just a, a hidden gem across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was deciding which way I wanted to go. And because I was here and with the funding and support that we had for grad students um, and the you know, the lack of a PhD program for Bliss meant that I could be mentored and have a lot of attention. Um, and I would never have gone on for a PhD if if the legacy programs weren't here. Mm-hmm. So I am very committed to keeping those in place. And when I see the students, I see myself, for sure. But one of the things that I thought was missing from Bliss, particularly in this era of incivility and rudeness, um, and, and sort of young people not remembering a time when it wasn't like right. this is an, a, a focus on the civic mission of higher education and the focus on the civic mission of the Bliss Institute. And so what I bring is research that focuses on transforming students into good, robust um, citizens who will live up to their civic and political obligations. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's definitely a huge communication component in that. And we, we do have a little bit of interdisciplinary um, action between the school communication and um, uh, political science. Absolutely. We have a new certificate in political communication, which I think makes all kinds of sense. My, I was a double major as an undergrad, so political science and public relations. And I certainly would have, if I had gone on um, to do, right, to continue working in campaigns, I would have been on the 
press and media side. Mm-hmm. Back when we called it a press secretary, that's yeah. what I would have been. <laughs> yeah. It, you, know, you mentioned um, the term applied politics. Tell people, what, what does that mean exactly? So typically most, most master's degrees in political science are really just focused on preparing grad students to go on for a PhD. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a stepping stone to a PhD. So the political scientists are focusing on, you know, cultivating little mini-me's um, who, um, you know, are really good at research, have read the literature, you know, are ready to step into a more rigorous academic scholarly program where instead of being in it, you study it, right? It's a step removed. Um, what we do instead with the Bliss Institute certificates for undergrads, the new certificate in political communication, as well as our Master of Applied Politics, um, what we focus on is instead preparing people to use that knowledge about how the political system works, about how to sustain elections and sustain a robust democracy, but we pair that with training um, in, in the kinds of skills that you need to step into being a consultant in a campaign, mm-hmm. right? Uh, working for um, an organization that supports community organizing or activism, um, working for one of the political parties, um, making sure our elections run smoothly, sending people off to be poll workers. Um, and in order to do that well, um, we do offer some of our courses are traditional political science courses, but we also hire professors of practice. So there are people who, um, you know, maybe have a master's degree or some other credential, but are also current professionals, mm-hmm. right, in the field. Right. And, and so that helps our students not only get cutting-edge training, but also build a network um, our students land in great places. Mm-hmm. Well, and I was just going to say, I mean, my recollection is we have a lot of students who, even if they um, either stop with the bachelor's degree or stop temporarily and earn another degree later, even just with the bachelor's degree in political science, you do have job opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And we, um, you know, we support students. Um, one of our endowments is specifically there to support um, students who have internships. Um, in political settings, uh, so it's not paid, but we can offer um, a little stipend or some support, and uh, combining that with either the undergraduate certificate and the political science major, or going on to do that as a master's student, um, where it's more in depth. Um, you know, we we support students um, here in Akron, in Columbus, in D.C. You know, we support students, and we're now online, right? So mm-hmm. my um, my colleague Dave Cohen made sure that we established a, a good footprint for taking the program online so students can now take it completely online. I know the students uh, who are associated with Bliss Institute you know definitely get some really important experience in terms of research and whether that's because they're a graduate student or somebody who's learning about you know how we take all of this data and I mean political polling is you know, I mean, people are probably tired of hearing about political polls here <laughs> after the last few weeks. But nonetheless, that's an important component of, of the Bliss Institute. And some of that polling is conducted by the Bliss Institute, um, you know, that is respected throughout the country. I mean, I, I know that Dave Cohen and John Green, uh, people like that, spend a lot of time talking with media across the country and even internationally because of the reputation that comes with Bliss and the work that's done there. Absolutely, and those are the kinds of things um, that in addition to the focus on um, experiences that cultivate good citizenship, absolutely committed to maintaining all of those legacy programs and keeping, you know, keeping bliss 
um, up to snuff, so to speak, mm-hmm. on, on all the things that we have historically been very good at, because I benefited from those things. And I benefited as a graduate student, definitely. Um, I, I learned many of those skills. At that point in time, Bliss did have an in-house um, uh, survey research lab that I helped uh, work in at that time, or you know, taking classes from a pollster, right, where you're helping in real time someone put those polls together. Um, but I also had an opportunity uh, that I, I had no idea what faculty did, right? I didn't know what professors did mm-hmm. outside of the classroom, and I had an opportunity to work on academic research projects. Um, and I'm always, right, I always have active research projects going on. I always have opportunities for students that want to learn more about doing research with me, whether that's an undergraduate student, you know, who's doing it you know, for some sort of course, or whether it's a funded grad student who's assigned to help me as a research assistant. Um, and that was pivotal for me personally, right? I wouldn't have felt comfortable going on um, for a PhD and thinking that I could write a dissertation, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, sure, I'll just go get a degree and write a book. I had no right. clue how to do that <laughs> until I was mentored by people. And so I actually just um, co-edited a book for the American Political Science Association called um, Strategies for Navigating Graduate School and Beyond, because I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't have family members who had graduate, they didn't have undergraduate degrees. I can understand. I, yeah. I came back um, to earn, to begin earning a master's degree 19 years after yeah. I graduated. So not only was there a lot of time in between, as an undergrad, I combination wasn't paying attention <laughs> just, or otherwise just wasn't aware of some of the things you're talking about. I didn't really understand yeah. what my professors were doing when they were not with me in a classroom. Um, and then, obviously, there was a huge gap between the way that we learned, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s versus, right. you know, around 2010-ish yeah. or something like that. I mean, I there was no internet. You know, right, exactly. So, yeah. So, I mean, it was really, le- it was learning how to learn. Exactly. On top of just new information and, and, yeah. and not really understanding what writing a scholarly yeah. paper is all about. But well, it before, turned out to be kind of fun. Before I, came, <laughs> before I came back to Akron, I always thought of Akron as the place where they put my feet on the path. Like, I had no clue where I was going to go. I, I didn't even really envision myself getting a PhD, but I was taken care of here. Mm-hmm. I was mentored. They put my feet on the path and, and I went, um, you know, and I'm so thrilled that I have this career and that this is where I landed and came back for the last half of my career. Um, and so I, I am absolutely dedicated wherever my students want to go, right? If they want to go on and, and do more academic work, if they want to go on and get PhDs, I will mentor them and help them. We'll find people to support them. And if they want those applied careers, mm-hmm. um, which, whichever direction that takes them, um, we'll, we'll make sure the Bliss Institute is there to support them. Well, and something you just said, too, we, we hear that a lot on this show and, and obviously outside of this, where students are often surprised but very happy to find out they came to an institution that is not a small, you know, two, 3,000 student enrollment. We're a large institution, but it still has, like, that kind of small school feel in terms of the relationships that you can build and the, the one-on-one help, the, the professors mm-hmm. who, they know who you are, they know your name, they remember your background, whatever. And that's a huge, that's a big thing. Yeah. And people don't expect it a lot of times yeah. when they come here and then they find it and then it really solidifies like, yes, this I is made the, the right place. decision. This is know? the place to be. Well, I still, I mean, to speak to how strong those relationships can be, I still co-author with, with a professor that mentored me here 
when I was in my master's program. He's, he's moved on and he's uh, chair of the department at Colby College in Maine. But we've stayed in touch for all of these years. Mm-hmm. We still write together. You know, those are the kind of relationships that you can cultivate mm-hmm. with your faculty here at Akron. All right. Well, we've had a lot of candidates trying to cultivate relationships with, <laughs> with voters, <laughs> definitely. And as we speak, I don't mind telling people this. We're actually talking on Friday morning, Friday the 11th, and there are still some things up in the air with the 2022 elections. Um, I don't know if any of that's really going to have settled down by the time this is broadcast. Um, but, you know, there are definitely, I guess, some really obvious takeaways from what has what happened this week, um, and maybe some that some people aren't aware of. I mean, the, the biggest thing is there were there was you know huge predictions about this red wave, the tsunami, uh, the red tsunami, I think it was called, and it it didn't really happen, at least not in the way that a lot of um, analysts were predicting. Is that a fair statement? That's absolutely a fair statement. And so, um, typically in a midterm election, it's especially if you have a president, you know, Joe Biden's not particularly popular right now. He has high unfavorability. We have high gas prices and some inflation and some other, you know, deep concerns, right, that that people have about the job market. Um, So normally in a typical midterm, you remember Obama's phrase, right? He got a shellacking, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oftentimes what happens is the midterm is an indictment or a, a referendum, so to speak, of the, the party that controls the presidency. Um, and that really didn't happen, even though it seems likely, I mean, we won't know for sure, there are still some races that are too close to call, um, and we won't know for certain for who knows when. Um, the House will probably go to the Republicans, which mm-hmm. you would probably anticipate in a midterm. Um, but the, the big surprise was that it seems, and again, we don't know for sure, but it seems likely that the Democrats have a shot at flipping the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and controlling the Senate. So, you know, I think the Biden administration is probably feeling pretty um, secure right now that that they did something right mm-hmm. um, to, to make this happen. Yeah, it's, I, it's almost, I, in, in some ways, it's like maybe it didn't go as well as they wanted, but better than we thought. Absolutely. And better yeah. than we thought is, <laughs> you know, okay, I guess, at this point. Yeah, and, and so... We won't we won't know for sure why 100 percent why until we have more post midterm polling mm-hmm. and also you know more they're starting to break down the exit polls um, and so we won't know for sure 100 percent why or you know which demographic groups flipped and and so on but there are a couple of things that we can point to that sort of prevented that red wave from happening and and one is that um, if midterms are a chance to have a referendum on national policy that is unpopular. The Supreme Court became the focal point for many people mm-hmm. of an unpopular uh, pol- a decision that will affect uh, policy outcomes across the, the states. Um, and so there, it, it looked like that concern for reproductive rights had faded and been sort of replaced by economic concerns, mm-hmm. which is why everyone thought we would have a normal midterm. Um, but in the exit polling, um, it when people were sort of talking about not what sort of broadly I think concerns are for the country, but what affects me personally, yeah. there were a lot of women who mentioned reproductive rights. And, and women turned out to vote, if you looked at the, at the percentages of who were the early voters. So I was looking at that before the, um, before the election to look at, you know, 
you know, were, were Democrats more likely to be early voters, either in person or with mail-in ballots, you know, and, and looking at some of the other demographic breakdowns, women turned out to vote as early voters by about across all the states, even if they were um, uh, traditionally conservative or red states, by about 10 to 15 percentage points over men. Hmm. So I suspect when you get when you drill down and get some answers from like, why did you feel so concerned about turning out to vote early? Why, you know, why was turnout high? Um, They those are the voters that would probably say they they prioritize reproductive rights. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many and and we may never know, but how many people turned out for that reason? How do I say this? Some of those same voters also have concerns about issues in the economy. Right. Um, And one of them outweigh the other. And I, I, you, 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 I guess you wonder if it hadn't been for Supreme Court, like how would that have been different, if at all? You know? Yeah. Oh, I certainly think. I mean, it, you could play with the stuff for days oh, absolutely. and weeks and, we and will. years. Right. Well, that's true. <laughs> Political scientists will <laughs> give us a couple of months. Um, but absolutely, that was um, part of the story, right? I mean, I don't know that that's the the entire story of why Republicans mm. didn't live up to that red wave in this in this midterm. Yeah, but I guess what I'm thinking is maybe some people it. might have said, well, I'm not happy with the economy, so I'm going to vote this way. And then they're like, oh, wait a minute. There's this right. other thing that is maybe even more important to me. Right. So that's and, how I'm going to sway my vote. And actually, if you looked at some of the um, successful governors, I'm thinking of um, Whitmer in Michigan. If you looked at her campaign rhetoric after she decided to um, I think kind of ignore the polls and kind of double down on reproductive rights. Like she kind of ignored, like and said, I'm going to talk about reproductive rights and the decision and the Supreme Court decision anyway, even though everyone's telling me to talk about the economy. Um, she tied the two together a- in her campaign rhetoric in really successful ways to say, you know, reproductive rights, family size, feeding children, um, uh, medical care for, um, you know, for an unviable um, uh, out, outcome with mm-hmm. you know with a baby that's going to need a lot of medical care before it passes away anyways um, you know she did a, she tried to tie those things together and say this you can't isolate one from the other they come together trying to trying to get that voter to see right that mm-hmm. she was trying to respond to both sure um, so it'd be interesting I, I was at least you know I used to live in Michigan we're close to Michigan so I was paying attention to you know, some of the campaign rhetoric in Michigan, it'd be interesting to see if other governors did the same thing. I think another thing that we're starting to analyze is what exactly was the Donald Trump factor, you know, in the elections um, in terms of turnout, um, how the vote went, and, and what it means, you know, moving forward. Some of the early feedback, and again, we'll have to wait for more full information from the exit polls, but some of the early feedback was, you know, there was there was a coalition of voters that emerged to give Biden the, the presidential win that is a sort of a broad, diverse coalition of people who are opposed to Donald, like, are opposed to Donald Trump. He's mm-hmm. polarizing, right? Sure. He's polarizing. And so um, that, that coalition of voters, you know, so it includes some never-Trumpers. Um, it includes some people who have kind of, right, um, flipped a little bit from being moderate Republicans to saying, you know, they'll probably go back to voting for Republican candidates, but will vote in opposition to Trump or Trump-supported candidates. Mm-hmm. And then you have some independents that have fallen there. And then, of course, right, the, the very highly mobilized voting bloc in yeah. the Democratic Party. 
and that that coalition, perhaps because Trump was so visible in supporting candidates, um, who, you know, a lot of whom have been defeated, um, that that coalition held in this midterm in ways that they probably wouldn't have mm-hmm. if Trump hadn't been so visible. I've read in a couple places where there were signs that some of the candidates who were supported by Trump did worse, even if they won, the margins were worse than Republican candidates who won that were not supported by Trump. And I I don't know if there's anything to that. I think that's another one of those things we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper into some of those data to really figure all of that out, probably with some exit polling and so Mm -hmm. forth. But um, kind of interesting that, like, he has this... I guess I'll say power. Um, <laughs> uh, there, there are people who still very much support him, believe in him, believe in what he believes in. Um, but even among the Republicans, it's still, um, I guess, split in mm-hmm. some ways. Mm-hmm. In some ways, you know, there's a lot of anticipation about him announcing relatively soon. I mean, the presidential election is just under t- two years away, but we're going to know in the next few months some of the candidates are going to start to emerge. He is supposedly going to be one of them. Inevitably, we'll see. I, I'm, uh, you know, 98% sure <laughs> that, that Trump is going to announce his candidacy soon. He seems to be teasing about it. Um, but I also think DeSantis, right, mm-hmm. um, the governor DeSantis will also run. Uh, other than that, I don't know who will jump and in. He had a huge margin yes. of victory in Absolutely. Florida. And a lot of – my understanding is, too, that there were a lot of um, – uh, Latino voters who went Republican, you know, maybe more than what was expected. Yeah, well, and I think um, Hispanic voters, um, one of the things sometimes pollsters do or sometimes even political scientists do is they lump all Hispanic voters together. And it is it is a very diverse population mm-hmm. that falls under, right, the, the labels of Latino and Hispanic. Um, and so depending on country of origin, um, Venezuelans and Cubans, right, because of a history of socialism or communism, tend to um, support Republican candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, Mexican Americans have historically, at least, been more likely to align with the um, Democratic Party. So, you know, it, it, there is a lot more nuance, right, within that broad label than sometimes people are aware. Which, right, and I think that started to be addressed more in in particularly the last presidential election. I think we were hearing more um, from political scientists, from from folks in the media who were starting to, you know, kind of do what you were just describing Mm -hmm. and not have, you know, realize that there's a lot of different things going on under that umbrella. And and even campaign managers and and consultants and candidates themselves, the tighter the margins, the, the more they have to respond to narrower demographic groups, like mm-hmm. to respond to the groups and, and individualize the message and think about, wait, right, one, one message doesn't work for everyone, um, and, and think about how to build a relationship with narrower demographic groups. Because when the margin for an election is 2% of mm-hmm. the vote, you've got yeah. to go find those voters. You know, there were a lot of people uh, a couple years ago who were left saying, first of all, it was for a lot of people, it was an anything but Trump mentality. Um, we're hearing a lot of, you know, whether or not Joe Biden will run, a lot of Democrats are saying we really should have someone else. Um, yet there doesn't seem to be anybody, at least not publicly, that is probably going to get the nomination, at least very easily. Nobody that anybody's excited about. Right. And same thing on the Republican side. And I, I can't help but wonder, are we going to see 
a Trump versus Biden and is, you know, I guess I'll I mean, I don't want to be opinionated about this, but is that the best we can do? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't um, know if there's other people who are going to emerge and that can happen. I mean, look, Barack Obama is a great example. Right. Well, I think probably the Democrats who might consider jumping into the race are probably waiting to see what Biden decides to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's probably up to Biden right at this point to decide whether he thinks you know, he's the best one who can maintain this momentum and move forward. If you were a strategist, though, for the Democrat Party, would you be recommending the president not? Uh, no, I think it, he know. has he has a lot more um, bona fides right now after this midterm. Uh, you know, you know, a lot more bona fides after this midterm for an unpopular president dealing with inflation to to be able to sustain midterm outcomes mm-hmm. like we just saw. Um, I think that a lot of um, people will back off on uh, on pressuring him not to run. But do you think that's good, though? you think it's good for the party and good for the nation? Uh, I, I, you know, um, <laughs> that's a hard question to answer. Yeah, Let I guess me, so. Yeah, um, I'm just wondering from the, from, the po- from the political party standpoint, if, it, if it's beneficial for the Democrat Party to, I guess, be kind of rallying among their own and figuring out, you know, who who else is there that has some of the things that Joe Biden may not have. Sure. Youth would be one of them. Right. Um, you know, some things like that that might appeal to voters, because even though, like you said, he has a lot of bona fides after this midterm election, um, is that really enough? You know, is right. that going to be enough to convince voters in two years right. that he's still the guy for another four? Or, or what the strategy should be. Like, we, we did see really high youth turnout in this election. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if Biden is going to be the candidate, you know, who are the surrogates that go out and, you know, mobilize some of the base that might not be particularly excited about, mm-hmm. you know, either because he's perceived as a moderate or because he's perceived as old, yeah. right? Um, old. Older. Right. Um, and... But doesn't you think Donald Trump, though, the Republicans would have the same or a similar problem because, you know, the party is really kind of fractured Um, and you can probably point to Donald Trump for a lot of that. So, I mean, if he were to um, be emerging as the nominee or be the nominee, you know, rallying those troops might be kind of difficult because, you know, you have the, the people who are just, you know, hail Donald. And then you have the other Republicans who, you know, say, well, I'm a Republican, but I'm not I'm not really behind him so much. That sounds like a really difficult task. Yeah, I think it's a difficult task within, you know, both parties have, right, Democrats are divided between moderates and progressives. Um, uh, Republicans are divided, you know, between sort of traditional conservatives and and the Donald Trump sort of voting bloc. Mm-hmm. Um, they both will have to figure out how to send surrogates and um, if those are the two candidates again, how to send surrogates and how to mobilize and bring people back to the fold who might not be happy with the um you know, with the person who won the nomination. Um, and, and oftentimes they'll do that by their, um, by who they choose as their vice president, mm-hmm. you know. So oh, for sure. Right, it would be interesting to see. Um, well, and I think you saw, I think you saw Trump doing that with Pence um, the first time around, right, mm-hmm. uh, to, to get someone who was um, sort of a familiar figure with traditional conservatives. Um, I don't, I, you know, he'll probably pick someone new if, he wins the nomination this time, yeah, I think but so. it doesn't sound like they're on the best of terms. Doesn't so. <laughs> with the new book? With the new book that's out, I, I think perhaps not. Um, but you know, I, I think a consultant would advise him to do something similar to try to bring. Yeah, the consultants <laughs> with Donald Trump. I don't know. He doesn't. 
He seems to like to, you know, kind of ignore advice he and does. do his own thing. But yeah. I mean, you know, arguably, um, he did become president of the United exactly. States. So I mean, right. I don't know. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, with with Biden. And it did seem that Democrats came home, uh, even if they weren't happy, you know, w- would maybe be parts of the blocks that were not happy with Biden. Young voters, for example, showed up at really high rates. 18 to 29 year olds showed up at really high rates. Um, one of the interesting statistics that I saw that I'm going to have to go back and try to suss out and make sense of later for my own teaching and research interests is that um, one of the exit polls found that um, 72% of women, 18 to 29-year-old women, voted for Democrats. Oh, wow. It's huge, right? Um, and, and showed up at high levels. Is that... Um is that a group of people who would normally lean Democrat? There's been a there's been a gender gap um, with women. It actually it actually initially started in the 1980s, and it happened because men became likely to like shift toward the Republican Party, not mm-hmm. because women left the you know left the Republicans right. and moved toward Democrats. It was men leaving uh, the Democratic Party, um, and so the gap emerges in the 80s, and it's gotten wider and wider with each generation where women. People who identify as women are much more likely um, to vote for Democrats. But this is the— um, and It might have been a matter of getting them out to actually vote. Right. right. And, but this is the—it just keeps growing with each generation. But this this would be the a, a pretty big gap with previous, like, older generations of women. Mm-hmm. But it's also a big gap between—I think it was in the 50s, 18 to 29-year-old uh, young men in that age group voted for Democrats, right? So there's a 20-point gap even within the— the generation. Mm-hmm. So that'll be interesting to see if if other exit polls find the same pattern. Um, they showed up. They turned out. No, well, we could and we you know could and, and hopefully we'll see you know even higher voter turnout. I mm-hmm. mean, there's, um, there's obviously with the Supreme Court decision mm-hmm. last summer, not not a big surprise that we right. saw more women and, and right. more women vote Democrat. I mean that just mm-hmm. it, it's I guess it's just not shocking. That's all. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And we'll see if those patterns stick over time or if mm-hmm. it was a blip because yeah. of. Right, the context of this election. So that'll be interesting to track going forward. And, you know, and colleges and universities have done a really good job um, in the past. You know, there's been a trend, you know, it's probably been a 20 to 30 year long trend to sort of figure out how to help students um, register to vote and become more active and make voting habitual based on what they experienced in college. But I think the past, even like 10 years, colleges and universities have really been trying in a nonpartisan way, right, helping every student that's interested in registering and helping every student that wants to figure out how to vote. Colleges and universities have been living up to that um, civic mission um, over the past 10 years in particular. Okay. Well, speaking of colleges and universities, here at the University of Akron, the uh, Bliss Institute for Applied Politics uh, right here, and you can um, you could actually just contact uh, Dr. Strawn. I'm sure she won't mind. Will you? Uh, absolutely <laughs> not. I'll, yeah. You could shoot her an email or otherwise find out about Bliss or um, even other programs within political science, whether you are maybe in high school and you're, you're making some choices or you're a current college student that maybe need to make a change, whether it's a change in major or a change in institution. And then obviously folks who are, you know, who are considering graduate degrees, whether you're you know, uh, more of a you know traditional younger graduate student, or you're somebody like me um, who waited till I was like in my 40s <laughs> to That's go right. back to school. But we can certainly accommodate here um, at the University of Akron. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you.
Zips Unlimited can be heard each Saturday at noon on 88.1 WZIP FM. Z- 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 Z-